Welcome to season two of the Price Lab podcast. Most of our conversations this season will be with guests to the Digital Humanities Seminar. These are usually in-person lunchtime discussions, but of course, this is a pretty unusual year. The seminar is being held remotely due to the ongoing pandemic, and we are recording these podcasts remotely as well. We think they sound pretty good, but please excuse any echoes or other glitches while we're temporarily unable to use our usual recording studio. Lauren Klein is an associate professor in the departments of English and Quantitative Theory and Methods at Emory University and co-author with Catherine D'Ignazio of Data Feminism, which came out in March 2020. For this episode of the podcast, Price Lab fellow Nikki Agate and Professor Klein met over Zoom to talk about the intersection of feminist thinking and data science, the genesis of data visualization, and how data can be used for social good. I'm Nikki Agate. I am the Assistant University Librarian for Research Data and Digital Scholarship at the University of Pennsylvania Libraries. And today joining me is Lauren Klein, Associate Professor of English and Quantitative Theory and Methods at Emory University. Thank you, Lauren. I'm really excited that you're here. And today we're mainly going to talk about Data Feminism, which is a book that came out with MIT Press. Was it last year? Yeah. Well, actually, it came out the week the pandemic hit, March 13th. Things shut down, including (laughs) our book release. (laughs) It is a co-written book with Catherine D'Ignacio, who's Assistant Professor of Urban Science and Planning at MIT. I'd love to know, how did the idea of the book come about? Catherine and I had both been interested in what each of us thought was a pretty unusual topic, this idea of what feminist data visualization would look like. I have been working on a historical project trying to find some forgotten women visualization designers from the 19th century. And at the same time, Catherine had been thinking about feminism in relation to design practice. And Around the same time, we had both published stuff on a very similar topic. And actually, a mutual friend was like, you should really know each other. Do you know each other already? And, you know, I would say our book is among a number of fantastic books that are allied in the intervention they're trying to make, which is data, data systems, data products are discriminatory in both impact and intent. I do think that one of the differences between our book and many, but not all of the other books, is that we do sort of feel like data has a role in the solution, not just something that must be refused at all costs. Can you talk a little bit more just about feminist data visualization in terms of the standard visualization techniques and how they maybe don't allow for a feminist approach? Broadly speaking, A feminist approach to visualization can be feminist in either contents, you know, so you're dealing with a feminist topic, it can take some sort of feminist form to it, or it can be feminist in process, sort of along the lines of community-centered work. But I should also say it's not an either-or, right? Like one of the very, very basic tenets of feminism is to not make yourself fall into these false choices between things, right? And so I would say that conventional visualization can still be feminist, even if it is not feminist in form or in topic, it can be feminist in its process. One project, which is this Atlas of Caregiving, actually does take a conventional visual form. The project thought really hard about how to quantify caregiving, which is emotional and affective, which is undercompensated if compensated at all, you know, all the things that we know about how caregiving falls away when we're thinking about work. 
they were trying to think about strategies of like, okay, we know this work is happening. How can we register it so that we can then visualize it? This led to them asking study participants to keep really detailed logs of everything that they did to be constantly rating their mood, their level of fatigue. They tried to sort of atomize the structure of care work. And then when they got this data, for the most part, they fed it into a like sort of D3 kind of standard visualization. And then the second visualization that we talk about in that section of the book, done by Georgia Lupi and Kaki King, while they do do some of the work of trying to quantify care work so that it can be visualized, the visualization itself is much more intentional in terms of playing with visual form so that mm -hmm. the more nebulous and affective dimensions of care work come into focus. One of the things I love about the book is just this sort of insistence on experience as data, as a data point not only doing that that sort of elevation of emotion and embodiment, but also of experience and of epistemological diversity. This is a much more personal visualization. Kaki King, a musician, does a very cool art practice, but is also the mother of a kid who is diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disease. She spent a period of time obsessively worrying, monitoring, attending to her child. And so this is the experience that she, working with her friend, who is also a very accomplished visualization designer, Georgia Lupi. And one of the things that I think they do really well is that they acknowledge that time when either you are sick or when you are caring for a sick person is so, so nebulous. One of the things that the visualization tries to do is reject like a linear timeline in order to sort of deliberately make things all over and unfolding and subjective. And it is data driven, of course. There's data behind every single pen stroke in that visualization. And yet the team deliberately represent time as fluid, as non-standard, in a way that was sort of more accurate. What did data look like in the 18th century? I think at some point in the book, you talk about data as a concept that actually starts back then. Yeah, this idea of quantification of the idea that we can know best by measuring in some sort of systematic and somewhat universalizing way. I mean, this is all an outgrowth of Enlightenment empiricism, right? And that accumulates and gathers intellectual force over the 17th century, 18th century, culminating in the sort of late 18th century crystallization of the concept of data, which is then taken up across fields and then into what people believe to be the first instance of data visualization, by which they mean not just sort of giving numbers a visual form as you would on some sort of math plot, sort of abstracting some sort of quantity that is not intrinsically numerical. What Enlightenment thinking pushes us towards is this idea of the sort of narrowness of types of experience that are knowable, that can be converted into knowledge, that can be communicated through these types of both charts on the one hand and data tables on the other. You have this narrowness of the idea of what should be considered data, which sort of is coincident with the narrowness of the idea of sort of who is the Enlightenment subject. People try to exclude from the history of data, the history of slavery, right? And I'm not the only person to have written about this. Like Jessica Marie Johnson has a great essay about this too. When people, when individual human lives were ripped from their homeland and put on these boats, 
they became data. This is datafication to the extreme, taking a human person's life and stripping them down to very few identifying characteristics. You know, this history is still playing out and we see now these manifestations in the ways in which all these data-driven systems are racialized, right, and racist because of the same history. On the one hand, the conversion of people, and more specifically Black people, into numbers, and because of the larger racist system and the legacies of slavery that have contributed to all the structural racism that we encounter in the U U.S. to be sure, but around the world too. The systems and the structures in which data-driven systems are placed, right, so that they have racist outcomes. One of the things I like about the book is that there is an attempt to see a future in which data is is for good. Perhaps if we can interrogate and rethink data practice, then we might actually be able to sort of move things a a around a little. In the book, you talk about this app that was created by the National Domestic Workers Alliance for sort of pulling portable benefits, right? And I, I started to think too about systems of mutual aid that I, and I'm sure a lot of other people have been, you know, like deeply in involved in during this pandemic. And, and sort of that's, that's a logistics and its own sort of data collection and sharing activity in and of itself by engaging in these either shorter term or less formal methods of really having a positive effect on real lives right now, do we risk sort of allowing those dominant power structures to just remain in place? I'm so glad that you asked this question because that specific example was one that Catherine and I talked about whether to include. So just to sort of give a little bit of context on this, the National Domestic Workers Alliance is essentially the major organizing mechanism for domestic workers. It's not a union but it sort of plays a similar role in that it tries to educate, spread information about resources, about legal rights and protections, and try to sort of use collective power in order to advocate both to states and federal government, and then also bring assistance and support in a way that could not be done at the individual level. They were like, okay, well, we have this problem where domestic workers rarely have access to healthcare, to benefits, to things like this. And they're like, okay, let's think about a way that we can enable access to healthcare and other benefits that would normally accrue to a salaried employee. And what they did is they made an app so that it sort of consolidates payments from multiple employers and then allows you to redeem them for insurance, time off, things like this. Should domestic workers have access to healthcare without having to use an app? Totally, 100%. Should it fall on individual workers to have to opt into this thing? No, not at all. Does it in itself have all sorts of problems of being somewhat techno-solutionist? Yes, of requiring a smartphone? Yes, you know, like there's all sorts of caveats here. Doing this does not obviate the need for lobbying the government for advocating for large-scale change. You can do both things, right? And because you were doing one, you don't need to not do the other. Feminism is okay with mess. It's rare that solutions or anything in the world are easy or simple or, you know, not complicated. I guess my last question for you is just, if we were to sort of bring this back to the academy and to scholars in the humanities in particular, who I think 
outside of digital humanities don't necessarily see what they're working with as data. Is there a way for them to begin to understand their resources as data and to almost see that questioning of methods of, of data collection, of data management, all of those things um, as somewhat emancipatory for them? Yeah, I mean, I do think that I actually feel like I'm more invested in making the case the other way around, that people in the humanities have actually been thinking about these same issues for a really long time and really theoretically sophisticated ways. I mean, my personal interest is in like the theory and the politics of the archive. But, you know, these issues with respect to the politics of the archive essentially are the issues with respect to the politics of data collection. Ultimately, that's what people remember. And that's what makes any kind of research compelling is your ability to have brought the figures or issues to life and to make them matter to the audience. And, you know, good data journalism does this really well. Good Mm -hmm. humanities scholarship does this really well too. Thank you so much, Lauren, for taking the time. It's been, it's been really lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much. This podcast is brought to you by the Price Lab for Digital Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania. We thank Michael and Vicki Price and the Mellon Foundation for their generous support.